Hello and welcome to the DC Wash-Up. It is episode number two and this week it's called Government Shut Down, Reopened, something like that. Um, I am producer Roscoe Whalen and joining me in the studio today, North America correspondent Stephanie March. Hello. North America Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Happy Australia Day. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. <laughs> and to celebrate Australia Day, we have a very special guest. It is uh, the correspondent for The Australian, Cam Stewart. G'day, Roscoe. So, guys, happy Australia Day. Why mm. are we doing anything? We're not even celebrating. What's going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure we're supposed to celebrate, are we? Are we, are we oh, allowed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, sorry. We've got we, 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 we to have that conversation. Let's leave that to others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the government shutdown that was over the weekend. Uh, lasted for about 72 hours, all told. Who wants to take the first stab at explaining to our audience what a government shutdown is and why it happens. Everyone uh, pointing to Zoe. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> Zoe in the middle. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> uh, let's just keep it simple. It's basically about passing a government spending bill. And interestingly, this is the fourth time in four months that a temporary spending bill has been passed. They call it a CR. It basically just continues funding the government for a temporary period. Um, and in this case, the Democrats dug in over immigration policy and said, we're not going to pass this spending bill uh, because we want an immigration policy debate to happen first, uh, specifically in relation to DREAMers or those covered under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival System that was put in place by Barack Obama. So two completely separate issues uh, resulted in the government being shut down for the best part of three days. And Zoe, I thought what was interesting about it is that from Australia, uh, you, I think you often assume it's just a simple government spending bill uh, and there's always this bit of brinksmanship. But I mean, increasingly over the years, it seems that all the parties attach all these other completely unrelated um, conditions on it. And it's really almost become um, a general sort of bill to resolve problems and issues, which of course often can't be resolved. And so you have funding held hostage. And I thought it was just a, a fascinating the way it played out this week, you know, with, with the Democrats attaching a completely unrelated bill uh, and a very emotive one at that about the, the dreamers, the future of the dreamers. Um, and then uh, and the Republicans saying, well, well, you own this shutdown. And so it was just an intriguing battle for those three days. Yeah. And it says a lot, doesn't it, about the dysfunctionality of the congressional system that the only way to actually get anything to happen is to attach something completely unrelated to the actual running of the federal government. And this is a fairly basic function of the society to actually keep the federal government going. But to say, we are not even going to allow this government to operate unless you consider this issue. Yes. And the Republicans really, I think, played it quite well. They certainly played hardball. I mean, they were coming out and they were saying, okay, so the Democrats, so you're putting um, illegal immigrants, is what they describe the Germans as, ahead of ordinary Americans. And, you know, that's really something that would play out so well in Donald Trump's heartland. Uh, probably beyond that, frankly, I think, if it, if it kept going. And so, to me, they really um, put the Democrats in a no-win position. And it wasn't that surprising that some 24 hours later, the Democrats pretty much backed down and decoupled the requirement, uh, you know, in the legislation terms at least. And the shutdown was a blame game in a way with both sides kind of pointing at each other and also people pointing at Donald Trump. Who is responsible for the shutdown in this situation? We obviously talk about Democrats taking leverage when they had the opportunity, but Democrats saying, you know, Republicans control the White House and both 
both chambers in Congress. Who was to blame? I think it's really interesting that going into it, there was that question, like, no one knows who's going to end up copying the blame for it. It's not a political decision that has any clear calculation. Um, but I think you could see from Donald Trump's tweets and from the White House and from Republicans that they were just, as you say, Cam, going to go all out, blaming it on the Democrats with the hashtag Schumer shutdown, referring to Chuck Schumer, the um, Senate minority um, leader, you know, um, Democrat shutdown, Schumer shutdown. And just Trump was tweeting like every hour about it, trying to sort of access his base and lay the blame on Democrats. And I think I wonder whether the fact that they did capitulate after essentially a weekend where not much happened and then half a day really on Monday, um, if it does make them look like they caved and whether they will be blamed for it at the end of the day. And it'd be interesting to see when polling comes out about what Democrats think of the way Democrats did handle it. I think the broad reaction from Democrats was that they gave in too easily on something that was giving them some leverage on this issue of the Dreamers and DACA, and that if you're going to bother shutting down the government, then shut it down proper, rather than <laughs> shutting it down over a weekend, which didn't really have any impact, and then giving in on a Monday. So, okay, a lot of federal staff had a day off work. But I feel that perhaps we won't quite know who won until we see this Dreamer Act debate and immigration reform debate play out over the next couple of weeks. If we get to the end of that with some sort of solution on DACA, perhaps the perception will be become that the Democrats actually did play it well. Um, but I think that the thing that struck me through the weekend uh, and most of this week was that these young people who were brought to America by their parents who've largely been living here since they were kids from various places were the central pawns in a much bigger debate and the humanity of that has been largely lost. And so you met a couple of these dreamers yesterday as part of a story that we're putting together that will be on the ABC tonight. Um, let's have a listen to their own experience and reaction to the government shutdown. When I think about that, that expiration date, I think about a can of food that has an expiration date, right? What do you do when uh, a, a can of food expires, right? You toss it away. And I feel that that can happen to me. I can just be tossed away, uh, put aside, and then be forgotten, right? Uh, so that is the reason why I need a DREAM Act. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a dreamer, right? My, I, I have a name, I have a story, I have feelings, and I'm not just this issue being talked about in Congress, right? I'm a person who has feelings, I'm a person who pays taxes, uh, I'm a productive member of this society. It hurts me that they try to use us as bargaining chips, um, that they are using as us for their political advantages that they're going back and forth in a situation where they see what can they get out of it instead of thinking of us as human beings. I don't, I don't see either party as um, one that champions the DREAM Act, really, because both of them have really shown that they don't, they don't support us, that they don't have our back. So the thing about these dreamers that we met, and there are a couple of young women, one who came here from Bolivia when she was 11, the other who came from a very crime-ridden town in Mexico when she was nine, is that 
their entire identity is wrapped up in being American. They don't identify with their home country really at all. Uh, they're also, in this case, two very impressive young women who have, despite financial difficulties, despite initially being here undocumented for many years, have fought their way through the system, have ended up being covered by DACA, uh, now extremely high-achieving university students and very impressive young people. Uh, they are terrified that they may be in a position that they are deported to their home country, not really knowing anyone there, um, not having any understanding of the culture uh, and feeling American. Uh, but the other thing that struck me is that these are people who... America has effectively invested something in over more than a decade um, and they have potential to be either deported if a solution is not found or to revert to becoming part of an undocumented underclass, um, highly educated young women who won't be able to work or study um, and will even lose their driver's licences in some cases. So we'll... we'll cease to be functioning members of society uh, and that doesn't seem to be a good outcome for either them or the country. And I think uh, what is amazing about the Dreamers and perhaps why they were put in the national spotlight uh, is that they're a very unusual class of, of, of illegal immigrant because they are still technically illegal immigrants. So when Donald Trump was uh, campaigning, of course, he was very tough on illegal immigration. That was one of his great platforms. Uh, he says he's, he's doing everything to... Um, to implement that platform. Uh, but really with the Dreamers, uh, it, it shows that there are illegal immigrants and illegal immigrants, if you like, because uh, the fact of these uh, Dreamers who came uh, mostly to America, I think before they were 16 years of age, uh, have only known America, as Zoe says. Uh, the A lot of Republicans who are very tough on immigration and uh, still don't want them to go back. I thought it's really interesting that some uh, Republican hawks like John McCain very, very opposed to the poor treatment of the Dreamers. Uh, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, very opposed, very concerned about their future. And so I saw a poll this week that said 79% um, of Americans uh, support some pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers. So really, uh, it's a very awkward one for the Republicans because um, they have to solve this problem, really, I think, uh, in a a conciliatory and humane fashion without appearing uh, that they're undermining their, their base. But it's no surprise, I think. I don't think it would be a surprise to Donald Trump's base if he does find some solution because it was the one aspect of immigration when he was asked before he won office and he said, well, maybe we can find a solution for the Dreamers. Like, it, he was never as hardline on the Dreamers as he was on all other aspects of immigration. So despite the fact that you know, it might upset some portions of his base and some Republicans who are up for re-election later in the year as a result. Um, it doesn't seem like it should be something that would be that big a deal. Maybe the getting funding for the wall, which he's tried to tie to a solution for the Dreamers, is actually more what he's concerned about as opposed to actually um, the the look of letting these, what is it, 800,000 yeah, or so people stay? I mean, the, the numbers are quite <laughs> wobbly because the number of Dreamers who are actually registered right now is around 700,000, I think 690,000. But there are various people who fall on either side of the Dreamer net who you could incorporate into a Dreamer Act and it might come out at a, around 1.3 million. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, Donald Trump's even said today that he's open to a path to citizenship for the Dreamers, which would be a huge step for them. And at, at the end of the day, the position that they're in at the moment is that they're still 
um, although they have some privileges, they're still not citizens. So that's a longer-term immigration reform that's needed. But I think that the stumbling block, as you say, Steph, is that the Republicans are going to have to tie the wall and border protection to the Dreamers in order to satisfy the base. And will the Democrats wear that? And that's kind of where we've been stuck for quite some time. So navigating the path through that is what's tricky. What is the role of Donald Trump in all of this? Because obviously this issue arose because he rescinded Barack Obama's executive order and punted things back to Congress. Was that him taking a courageous stand and saying, no, we need to find a final solution to resolve this? Or is this a bit of an own goal by Donald Trump that kind of forced his own government to shut down? I tend to think more of the own goal style. I think... uh it was, I don't really know why he wanted to attack this area because it's a very fraught area, as we're seeing. I think Donald Trump has been all over the place with the Dreamers. Uh, sometimes he, he describes them as illegal immigrants and, and the citizens, and he speaks very harshly when he wants to criticise the Democrats. Uh, but then he says things like he just did 24 hours ago and saying we want a pathway forward, etc., etc. So I think he's been incredibly inconsistent, which makes it very hard for Congress to negotiate properly. And poor Dreamers, I mean, my God, what a... What a living living nightmare they are going through at the moment. Well, and it's all also um, the legal issues as well. I mean, there were 17 state governors, I think it was, who were going to actually uh, take this to court because it was seen as a, an executive overreach by Barack Obama. And it, in a way, that was the excuse for Donald Trump to bring it forward and say, well, we need a legislative solution to this. So, OK, Congress, you sort it out. But... It is definitely an extremely fraught area. And these young people, I wonder how they function, frankly, day to day with the weight of the possibility of either deportation or losing most things that allow them freedom in their life hanging over them. Uh, One of the young women that we spoke to this week her dreamer status expires in November. That's not long away uh, to consider that you can't see a life or a future beyond 10 months. Um, It's a pretty awful predicament to be in to have your entire future in the hands of the Trump administration and a a pretty fractured Congress. And the ability to negotiate with Donald Trump as well. I mean, uh, Chuck Schumer described it as negotiating with jello, which I'm not sure is exactly (laughs) the metaphor, but (laughs) point taken. Um, What And this kind of sense that Donald Trump was sidelined once the government shut down happened. What does that say about him as the commander-in-chief and his ability to negotiate deals on Capitol Hill? I actually thought it was quite smart for Trump to be relatively quiet during that shutdown period because um, Chuck Schumer wanted to call it the Trump shutdown. He did call it the Trump shutdown. He wanted, uh, Democrats wanted to be blamed on Trump and Trump I think certainly feared that that would be the case. So just for those couple of days he was unusually quiet. And I think that was probably quite a smart move because it kept the focus on the, on the Democrats. I'm not saying that Donald Trump was necessarily brilliant in his strategies uh, in dealing with the Democrats because I don't think he is. But I think in that situation, I think he played it quite well. Time for the weekly instalment of the Russia investigation. Don't <laughs> be so sad when it's over. <laughs> do you put Russian music on at this point? We should. Great idea. That's a great Let's do idea. That. Pause. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) 
post-production, hey? <laughs> so Donald Trump, he he is, he isn't, he is going to be interviewed by Robert Mueller. He's looking forward to it. Bring He's it on. He yeah. loves it. <laughs> is that is that that segment done? Do you well, I, I just hope it's public. Like let let's, let's yeah. go no holds barred here. Yeah. Let, oh. Let's take down all the boundaries. If we're going to do this, let's have an open hearing. Bob Mueller interviewing mm. Donald Trump on TV. It, 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 it would put the Bill. <laughs> the, it, 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 it would put the Bill Clinton. I did not have sexual relations with that women moment in the shade. I can see goodness. the TV ratings now exploding. How did it's amazing that. Can you imagine being his lawyer and who've apparently been carefully negotiating with Robert Mueller exactly the circumstances surrounding how Donald Trump would be interviewed? And then he goes out yesterday and says, I'm looking forward to it. I'll talk to him under oath. It's just incredible. Yeah, what a nightmare for them. I mean, the only good thing about being Donald Trump's lawyer is you'd be very wealthy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, it wouldn't be an absolute nightmare. And you you can see, you can almost feel their minds working overtime here to try to work out a way to, to, to agree to a conditions of the interview which keeps the president on a reasonable leash and just doesn't let him wander off because he has a very good penchant for wandering off onto unrelated topics or else just saying things he really shouldn't. And, I mean, it's a genuine concern for them, I think. So at this point in time, it does sound like they're really trying to frame something that will keep the president relatively safe, but I don't know how they're going to do that. And it seems like a lot of the talking points from the Republican side and Trump's backers is that he shouldn't talk to Mueller and that it's a perjury trap is sort of the line that they're using, which, um, you know, and it speaks to what Donald Trump said last night in a way. He's like, oh, you fight back and it's obstruction. It's like, well, interesting. Like, I mean, that's sort of, you know, his his own view of it is just so um, unnuanced in a way. It's just, yeah. And we also found out this week that the very weak, beleaguered Attorney General Jeff Sessions was also interviewed by Robert Mueller for some hours last week. Zoe, what's the significance of that? Uh, Well, he was the first Cabinet member to be interviewed, and he was interviewed, as you said, for several hours. We don't really know what was said. Um, But Jeff Sessions has been a pivotal player over the last couple of years, first as an advisor during the campaign. Uh, He recused himself from the Russia investigation after having a couple of meetings with the Russian ambassador that he failed to mention. Uh, When they were revealed by the Washington Post, he then had to take himself out of the Russia investigation, even though he's the AG because of potential conflict of interest. Uh, He said campaign issues weren't discussed in those meetings. Sergei Kislyak, the then ambassador, went back and told his own government that, in fact, that's what they talked about. Uh, So you'd expect that Bob Mueller would be interested to know exactly what was said in those meetings. But then the other key aspect, of course, is the sacking of the FBI chief, James Comey, in 2017. Uh, The fact that Jeff Sessions, again, was uh, very much Donald Trump's right-hand man during that time. Uh, And James Comey made various allegations about undertakings that Donald Trump expected from him in terms of loyalty etc. So again, a second line of questioning for Bob Mueller around what Jeff Sessions knew uh, and whether any of that amounts to an attempt by the president or the administration to obstruct justice. And he would certainly give rich pickings Jeff Sessions if he was forthcoming in his answers. Um, Because I think uh, especially that that part of uh, what did he know about why Donald Trump wanted to sack uh, James Comey? Uh, the White House, of course, came out initially and said it was because of his mishandling of the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Then Donald Trump himself, a couple of days later, came out and said it was uh, because the Russian thing was on his mind. Now, Jeff Sessions would have been there at the at the coalface during those those discussions and those chats. So, 
depending on how uh, much, how well his memory serves him, <laughs> it might have been a reasonably interesting discussion. Yeah, and notably when Jeff Sessions has appeared publicly before the Senate Intelligence Committee, for example, he was obfuscating uh, quite a lot to the frustration of the Senate uh, panel members. So whether he was able to get away with that behind closed doors with Bob Mueller, obviously we don't know. Uh, but I guess... You know, speaking of Donald Trump and his ability to um, wander off track and get himself into all sorts of pickles, I mean, this is essentially Donald Trump's own doing uh, in the sense that the investigation initially was into Russian election meddling and it's now become an investigation into that and whether the president or the administration tried to obstruct justice in relation to that investigation. So, you know, the area of interest has broadened by Donald Trump's own hand, really. Old cover-up may be worse than the crime. One last topic today, I thought, and we might just change tracks a little bit here. Steph, you were covering the sentencing of Larry Nasser yesterday. Mm. Uh, explain just briefly what that case was and the significance of it. It was horrific. Um, it was Larry Nasser is a doctor for USA Gymnastics and for Michigan State University and over 20 years abused and molested more than 150 women and girls. And um, he has been on trial for the past uh, two months. Um, and essentially during that trial period over the last seven or so days, um, the court has been hearing from his victims in what has been some tearful and harrowing and heart-wrenching testimony. And yesterday, uh, finally, they got what they'd been hoping for, which was um, a sentence for Larry Nasser, which is up to 175 years in prison, which is actually more than what prosecutors were calling for. They were calling for 40 to 125. Um, he's already doing 60 for child pornography possession, so chances are, as the judge said, I've just signed your death warrant. Um, he won't see the light of day again. But I think it's an interesting um, sort of concrete result at, at this time. We're talking about Me Too and Time's Up and actually getting tangible um, results from these cases. It's interesting that he pled guilty um, and the judge said she sort of saw that as a, um, you know, a sign that she'd um, taken into consideration when sentencing him. And then she read a letter yesterday that he wrote to the court last week, um, essentially him saying he thinks that... It was a witch hunt that he was forced into entering a guilty plea by the Attorney General, um, that the stories were all fabricated, and he went on to say, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, which and, just and, completely and undid. And wasn't it incredible how the courtroom just sort of gasped yeah. at that moment? I thought her her, her sentencing was, was terrific. It was, it was mm. very theatrical, deliberately so, yes. but by gee, it was powerful. And when she read that letter and, and people were gasping, and then the way she flicked the letter away mm. with complete disdain... Mm. And just said, "You are none. You know, you are you are nothing. I wouldn't let my dogs be treated by you." Uh, yeah. It was a really remarkable um, sentencing. She obviously deliberately made it theatrical like that to get attention, but I think that's a great thing because it was such an absolutely horrific case. And that all the courtroom, as as Steph said, had sat through seven days of heartbreaking testimony from these victims. I don't know how linked together all of these things are, but it is interesting, isn't it? When you even hark back to uh, the university campus rape mm. uh, it, case that we saw last year, I think it was, where you saw the victim impact statement that went viral around the world. You've now seen, you know, all of these sexual harassment cases um, being opened up 
and now this amazing group of young women mm. precipitated by one young wo- woman who yeah. told her story to a local newspaper and that then cracked open this absolutely horrific case of sexual uh, um, abuse and assault. You just wonder whether all of those things are interconnected, at least in the sense that women and girls feel that they'll be believed and Mm. that that gives them the courage to actually tell their story. Because in this case, there had been several complaints made against him previously that had not been acted on by various people, and I'm sure those people are really taking a good hard look at themselves now. Um, But we we do seem to be in a climate where it's no longer uh, you need to prove that that happened. It's more you get believed and the perpetrator has to prove that it didn't. Mm. It was really interesting the judge said exactly that, that these survivors telling their stories will hopefully encourage others to have the confidence to do it again. And it's interesting how powerful it was hearing. We, we heard yesterday from one woman for the first time, she spoke after the sentencing and she was just furious and just you could tell it was sort of it seemed like a release just to be able to say it publicly and she said she wished she'd spoken in the courtroom she had a lot to say to him but instead she just said you know um, if anyone's okay with these people who um, you know allow this culture of abuse to continue still being in positions there's something wrong with you and that's sort of the next step of this I I think just because Larry Nass has gone to prison and his sentencing's done um, the call from these women to have other people held accountable for allowing this culture of abuse to prevail. Um, we saw the Michigan State president, university president, resign yesterday, but there's a lot more scalps that these women are hoping to take uh, in terms of accountability. So it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how it plays out. Yes. I mean, several executive members of the board of USA Gymnastics mm. have resigned over it, and rightly so. And really... These awful things happen in all sorts of nooks and crannies of society. You would think that USA Gymnastics Mm. would be clean as a whistle on this sort of stuff. And to see this happening at that sort of level is, you know, it's it's horrifying in any place, but it, it just shows how deeply this permeates all levels of society and that eyes need to be wide open to this stuff. And also how deeply flawed that system was because to get that many young girls, and we're talking very young girls here in lots of situations, and for it to take so long to to, to percolate into the courts, I thought was just, it's just astonishing. So there really are still some big concerns about these big institutions and how that sort of thing could happen. And bringing it broadly back as well to politics again, Zoe, it comes just days after Trump's year anniversary in office and you were out on the streets again on the weekend where we saw the Women's March Part 2. What was the the sentiment and the energy like there amongst women a year on into Donald Trump? I think it was quite different to last year. Um, the day after the inauguration, it was almost a quite festive atmosphere and it was a little bit like we're out here showing our our colours, you know, we are women, hear us roar sort of thing. And there was, there was a lot of people on the street. Um, this year, there were still a lot of people, but the vibe to me seemed more quietly determined, if you like. And the, the underlying message behind the marches that were held this year was we want to get more, more women into office. Um, unsurprisingly, the, the crowd is... Uh, the Democrat slanted crowd or a more left-wing um, crowd, but it's very much being used as a vehicle to mobilise women beyond acti- activism into action. Uh, so that's an interesting step 
compared to last year, which seemed to be more of a, a statement exercise? That's probably all we have time for this week. We found out the news this week that our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, may be joining us in just a few weeks' time. Thanks to Cam thanks, Stewart Cam. there. Thanks, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> Any more detail on the exact dates? We haven't been able to find out just yet. 4.30pm. <laughs> We'll be there. All right. Thanks for joining us today, Cam, and thanks, Steph and Zoe, as always. And we'll talk to you again next week. Cheers.